Thanks for listening to the weekly teaching podcast for City Church in Knoxville, Tennessee. It is our desire to be a Jesus-centered family on mission. If you live here in Knoxville or are ever visiting the area, we'd love to have you with us at one of our Sunday gatherings. You can find out more at citychurchknox.com. If you're interested in giving financially to help us reach more people in our city, you can give easily at citychurchknox.com give. And finally, if this teaching is helpful to you in any way, we'd love to hear about it. You can email us at info at citychurchknox.com. With that being said, here's this week's teaching. All right. How are we doing, City Church? Good. My name is Jake, um, and like Colton said, I'm from Columbia, and good to be with y'all this morning. Um, just to preface, um, I tend to be a little sarcastic and jokey in uh, my sermon delivery, so I just want y'all to know that ahead of time, okay? Um, I also wanted to introduce you to my family real quick, because I feel like you can't really know much about me unless you know my family. So here's my family right here. Uh, my wife, Lucy, she's the one in the middle. Uh, we've been married now. <laughs> That was a good, yeah, okay, so you're, you're caught up to speed now. Um, we've been married now 10 years, and we have three kids, so it's getting pretty serious. Um, we have Caroline, she is eight years old, about to be nine. We have our son Sawyer, who is about to be six, and then there's our daughter Kate hiding in the back. She just turned five, and we have number four coming along in September, Um, because we just thought we're sleeping too much, and we need to do something about that. But we're very excited about that. Uh, Y'all have been in a series, uh, Matthew, for like a decade at this point, so I'm very glad to be with y'all to teach. As Molly just read, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 24, so we'd invite you to turn there. And as you're turning there, I have a story I want to share with y'all. Suppose there's someone in your church, let's call him Tom, okay? Let's say Tom's been a Christian for a while now. He's come into life group. He does all the stuff that Christians are called to do. He reads his Bible. He shows up to Sunday gatherings. And yet, Sunday mornings and at life group, and even as he examines his life, he just notices there's a disconnect. There's a, there's a gap in his life when he hears the word preached on Sundays and when he hears the the word opened up and talked about and what Jesus is calling him into. He just notices his life and what scripture says, and he just feels that there's this distance, there's this gap. And so he wakes up in the morning and he just finds himself struggling to go to God in prayer and to read scripture. It just feels like a chore for him. And then he goes to work and he's just on mental autopilot and he still finds himself more or less coasting and he still compares himself to other workers. He talks highly about himself to his boss to make himself look good in front of his boss. And then he gets home and he still finds himself on mental autopilot where he knows he's supposed to spend time with his family and connect with his kids. And yet he just finds himself wanting to to veg out to get in front of the Netflix and to just tune out from the day and to, to go be comfortable He finds this temptation still in him after years and years of looking at stuff on the screen that he knows he shouldn't. And as he goes to bed that night, he knows he should have this posture of gratitude in his soul. And yet he still is just exhausted and worn out just knowing that the next day is going to happen and it's going to repeat all over. 
What does he do with that? And maybe you've experienced at some point in your Christian life what Tom has experienced, where you've noticed the gaps in your walk with Jesus, and that no matter how aware of it you are, no matter how many times you've confessed that to God and to life group, no matter how many times you've made plans to stop sinning in one way or another, you haven't seen any growth. And to be honest, you're just weary You're frustrated by it all. Maybe you've experienced what author Pete Scazzaro calls the wall that he says most Christians at some point in following Jesus will experience. They will hit the wall where they will place their faith in Jesus and they will repent of sin and they will be walking in the practices and doing what Christians are supposed to do. But then a point comes in their Christian journey, whether that's hitting a midlife crisis or a season of suffering where uh, God just feels distant And Scazzaro says about 85% of Christians never move beyond that wall. That many Christians, when they hit that inevitable obstacle, no matter what it is, most of them retreat. Some of them stop following Jesus altogether. So what do you do when you experience that gap or hit that wall? Well, in today's passage this morning, the answer is going to come in a way that you may not expect. The answer that we're going to see here is in the second coming of Jesus. What? Who saw that coming? So Matthew chapter 24, to give you a quick recap, uh, one of my dear friends, John Ludovino, was here last week. He's a pastor at the church I'm a pastor at. If you weren't here, he talked about the end time, so very light breezy stuff for a guest pastor to come teach on. My wife asked me, she said, what are you teaching on tomorrow? And I said, well, you know, I'm teaching on the end times and some parables. And she said, did you pick that passage to teach? I said, no. Why would, no. Anyway, though, as weird as that sounds, this is the age where as followers of Jesus, we find ourselves in. Jesus has conquered the grave and now our, the church, God's people, we are to carry out God's mission until he comes back. We are now living in the end times, knowing that one day Jesus will return in bodily form to resurrect the living and the dead, to judge them, and then he will do away with all sin and death forever. He will renew this world on earth as it is in heaven. This is something that the global church for the last 2,000 years, we've all agreed this is what happens. But as far as the details of what that looks like and when that's going to happen, we don't really know. And the details are just kind of murky, and I think that's kind of the point, is that Jesus wants us to be on our toes, to be ready for him to come at any hour, at any day. And the problem with the fact that we just don't know is over the course of 2,000 years, Christians tend to err in one of two ways when it comes to Jesus' return. Some of them obsess over Jesus' return way too much, right? These are the folks, they have all of the left behind books. Um, These are people who are like, let's quit our jobs, let's hunker down, let's buy a bunker, uh, let's buy all the canned goods we can, and let's just wait and just stare at the sky and wait for Jesus to return at any moment. And I think a lot of us see that and think, well, that's silly. Like, I don't, I don't want to be that. Although, I don't know if, uh, if you've ever seen The Last of Us. They made a pretty compelling case for buying a bunker. I don't know, for any Last of Us fans. It made me think, oh, you know, he's not wrong. But anyway, I think a lot of us can see that and think, well, pfft. That's intense. I don't, I don't want to be that. And when that happens, we end up backing up into the other error, which is not really thinking about Jesus' return at all. 
It's like, yeah, I know Jesus is coming back, but we don't know when, so, you know, it's been 2,000 years, nothing's happened yet, so try not to think about it, and I just kind of move on with my life. And knowing these two errors, Jesus is going to correct both sides. And in the passage we're looking at today, which Molly just read for us, he is addressing error number two, this error of not really thinking about Jesus' return. And Jesus gives us two parables to wrap our minds around what it is going to be like. So he gives us these two. The first one is the parable of the two servants. I'm just going to breeze through that really quick. Both of these servants, they're put in charge of the master's house. One of them is the good kind of ready. He's wise, he's faithful, he's ready for his master to arrive at any time. He's not obsessing over it, but he is aware that that is going to happen, and so he is faithful. He's living in the awareness that the master will come back at any time, and that servant is later rewarded in the passage when the master does arrive. And then there's the wicked servant who assumes the master is never going to come, so what's he do? He starts wreaking havoc and destruction on everybody, including himself. And what's the result? According to Matthew 24, 51, Jesus says, He will cut him in pieces and put him with the hypocrites. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Yikes. That escalated rather quickly. This is one of those things where if I was Jesus' PR manager, I'd be like, hey, can we like dial that back a bit like the peace and love stuff like people love that but when you say stuff like that this makes people really uncomfortable Jesus and I think that is his point he is trying to put the pressure on us and make us squirm a little bit to wrestle with exactly what he is talking about for those who are not aware of Jesus's return and who instead pursue destruction that destruction will come back on them Paul says this in Galatians 6 8 similarly For the one who sows to his own flesh will reap from the flesh, will reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will reap from the Spirit eternal life. Now to be clear, Jesus and Paul are not saying, do this to be a good Christian and then you will be saved. He's not saying that. Rather, a Christian is saved from sin and enters the kingdom of God when they put their faith in Jesus. Apart from anything they do, we are saved by grace and... What a Christian does after that is evidence of whether that person has truly been transformed by the grace of God or not. So if your faith is in Jesus, the evidence of that is following him, being the faithful servant. And if you say you're a Christian and there is no evidence, no transformation, then you might not actually be a Christian. More on that parable in a second. I'm going to move on to that second one, the parable of the ten virgins. It's very similar to the previous parable, but now we have a new setting, a new cast of characters, but very similar here. Uh, so I've got to give us some background. Uh, first of all, uh, don't let the virgin stuff trip you up, okay? Like, again, if I was Jesus' PR manager, I'd be like, can we not say that? Can we just say, like, wedding party? You know, because that, that, trips, that trips me up at least. But to give us some context... Jewish weddings 2,000 years ago, when the parable labels them virgins, it's not so much talking about their sexual history as it is just saying, here are young, unmarried people. These people are basically like the wedding party. And in this parable, they are waiting for the reception party to start. So if you've ever been to a wedding, you know, once the ceremony happens, you go to the next place, the next venue, and you're having cocktails and little appetizers, and you're just waiting for the wedding party to come because that's when the party really gets bumping, right? So that's what's happening, except 
they are waiting outside of the venue. So they're not getting the cocktails and the appetizers. They're just waiting around, just kind of like waiting for the bride and groom to arrive at any second. And it's at that point where we enter into the parable and we have five of them who are prepared like the servant in the last parable. They're watchful, they're ready, they're knowing the bride and groom could arrive at any moment. So when they do finally arrive, hey, it's party time. The door's open, they enter into the reception. Back then, uh, Jewish reception parties could last up to seven days. And this was like the big event of the town. This was like a party you did not want to miss. And then you have five of them, five of the wedding party, the virgins. They're sleepy, they're lazy. And when the bride and groom enter the house, they were not prepared. And you would think, you know, five of them, with them being virgins and all, you think they'd be good at waiting, right? I'll let you all just think about that. They probably had, you know, the promise rings and everything. <laughs> promise rings, do we all know what that is? Okay, I was wondering if I was going to date myself. Uh, you know, back uh, when I was in high school, we did the whole, like, you know, talk and come up to get a promise ring. I had the self-awareness to know that I did not need a ring to communicate abstinence. Like, if you knew me in high school, my whole vibe was like, <laughs> no ring needed. Like, we all, we all know. Anyway... By the time they wake up and see what's going on, they realize it is too late. They are outside of the house. So with these two parables, I want us to draw out some similarities in both of them to see what it has to say to us about being ready for Jesus' second return. First point is how you wait reveals who you're waiting for. How you wait reveals who you're waiting for. So in both parables, each group had a perception of their host, and that informed how they were going to wait. So one group had a perception that this host was never coming, coming back, or if they were, it was not going to be anytime soon, and so that informed their actions. The other had a perception that they were coming soon, and as a result, they were ready, they were prepared. This is a, this is a silly example, and I'm going to embarrass myself a little bit, but that's fine. Um, I can't help but think about there are times when I'm in bed, and it's the middle of the night, and I will get woken up to a sound outside. And I'll like open up my eyes a little bit, kind of just wait for another sound to happen. And then I slowly start to drift back to sleep. But then I hear my wife say, are you going to check that? And I go, yeah, totally. I was absolutely, <laughs> I'm glad we're on the same page here because that's actually what I'm about to do. And like in my heart, it's like there's not anyone outside. But I go and, you know, I just kind of like, mosey around the living room, just like peer out a window, yep, yep, just mosey around, peer out a window, yep, head back to bed, and I say, hey, I checked, we're good, we're good, baby, because in my heart, it's like, I, I know there's not anyone coming to like rob our house or anything, you know, but if I did actually think someone was coming, like I would be prepared, I would like sit up, I would grab the bat, I would rig the house, home alone style, I would be ready for them to come at any moment, because I knew I was ready. I was prepared. My perception of whether someone was coming to my house influenced my response. And likewise, the faithful servant, the wedding party that was prepared, they assumed their host would keep their word and arrive at any moment. And as a result, they went to work. They prepared themselves. Likewise, the wicked servant, the unprepared wedding party, they assumed the host would not keep their word. And so they were unprepared for when they arrived. So that's point one. 
We'll get back to that in a minute. Point two I want to draw out is how you wait in this life sets a trajectory for your soul. Jesus, again, he's not just talking about a simple story here and there, but he's talking about his return and how you wait sets a trajectory. So for the people who were ready, they entered into the party. The servant who was faithful, he was rewarded. Whereas the one who was not ready, who was wicked, he's cast out. Likewise, the unprepared wedding party, they are cast out of the house. Similarly, when it comes to following Jesus, for those who are faithful, there is fullness of life, there is joy, there is peace, there is love, there is meaning in your soul, there is purpose in your life, there is this unshakable security that you have to know that you are fully loved and fully known by the God of the universe. That when suffering and pain come your way, you trust Jesus to know that he is doing something about your pain and your suffering and that one day he will wipe every tear away from your eye. Jesus says for those of us who choose this way to the very end, persevering each step of the way, all the stuff of God's kingdom we experience in this life. All of this goodness is but a foretaste of what is in store for us in the next life. No more sin, no more death. The world is passing, and for those in Jesus, all of the heartbreak and sadness and brokenness of this life is the closest to hell we will ever experience. And for those who choose the way of self, God ultimately hands you over to what you want. For those who pursue chasing anything outside of God, God ultimately gives you over to those things. But the catch is, those things will never give you life to the fullest. And God gives us this life that we have here and now to make that choice. Will you follow the way of self or will you follow the way of Jesus? The world is passing. And for those who choose to follow self outside of Jesus, who choose unfaithfulness, all the good stuff of this life is the closest to heaven you will ever experience. Now let's pivot to what that means for us. Zooming out a bit, like we mentioned, Jesus assumes when he comes to his return, when it comes to his bodily presence coming to judge the living and the dead, he assumes these two errors of one error is obsessing over it too much, the second error is not thinking about it at all. And when that happens, when we fall prey to error two, my concern is our mindset shift, the trajectory of our heart we allow ourselves to become susceptible, to become like the wicked servant or the unprepared wedding party, and we may not even realize it because we just assume it's fine. You know, he's not coming back any second now, so I choose not to think about it. But when that happens, I wonder if we're more susceptible to becoming like the wedding party or the wicked servant. And I think this can happen for a number of reasons. Maybe it's a predisposition to disbelieve the supernatural. It's like, look, I'm a Christian, but it's 2023, and you're talking about Jesus, like, appearing in the clouds, judging the living and the dead, resurrecting our bodies. What on earth are we talking about here? It's it's 2023, and honestly, like, I'm a little embarrassed by this. So let's, like, just downplay that stuff to my non-Christian friends. I I just don't want to think about that. Maybe it's the pressure you feel that you just need to be free. You need to maximize your autonomy. That's what our culture is all about. It's all about maximizing your personal freedom. And if Jesus' return is going to happen any time, any day, then that means what he says I ought to follow. And the truth is the world and culture will tell you, no, pursue and do whatever you want to do. 
If Jesus isn't coming back anytime soon, live your life however you want. Pursue what makes you happy. Maybe you've been a Christian for a minute, and the truth is, you're just exhausted. Like the unprepared wedding party, you're sleepy. You're spiritually just worn out. Whether it's your season of life or your sin struggles that you see in your life with no hope of getting better. Maybe you're in a season of suffering and Jesus just seems distant or non-existent. Like you show up to prayer and it's like, I don't, God, I don't, I don't know where you are right now. This is hard for me. Maybe it's death by a million little paper cuts to think this again, like I'm, I'm pursuing Jesus and like I'm, I really want God's kingdom to come here on earth. But I look around me and gosh, this again. I tell you, just to be honest, this is where I can find myself in that, in that pocket of just thinking, gosh, this is happening again. Another broken marriage, another moral failure, death by a million paper cuts. Jesus, when are you coming back? Please come back soon. And your mind starts to slip to think, God, I don't, are you working? Is there any hope? I don't, I don't know if you're coming back or not. In his book, Sacred Fire, author Ronald Rollheiser discusses this dilemma at length. He says there's a certain point in our lives where we experience what is called the death of the honeymoon. And it's this, in this stage of life that we all eventually reach where we start to see reality for what it is, where the story that we bought into and lived into is not actually all it's cracked up to be. Maybe you've been taught you can be anything you want to be and you can change the world. But then reality sets in and you look at your life and it's not what you thought it'd be. Maybe you realize your spouse, as awesome, as great as they are, you begin to realize they don't complete you, but rather they're broken and they're sinful, just like you. You realized you haven't changed the world. You have a normal job and the job is fine. It's good, but it's, it's not life-changing, life-altering. It's not life-fulfilling the way you thought it'd be. You don't have famous friends in a hip, cool city. You have regular friends in a regular city, and that's fine. But this is your life, and the big dream is over, and all of these limitless possibilities that were before you in your teen years and in your 20-somethings, you start to make those big decisions in life, and you buy the house, and you start raising a family, and it's like, I don't really have all the big life decisions to make anymore. I've made them. And some people, they hit this stage of life, and they look back, and they're not happy with the life that they have built like the wedding party or the wicked servant, this can all too quickly distort your view of the master. And Rollheiser says, when the purpose we strive for does not live up to what we thought, this becomes the death of the honeymoon. This idea to say, look, Jesus was a good idea, but look at my life and look where that's gotten me. And people, when they hit this death of the honeymoon stage, they can respond in a number of ways. Some choose to have the midlife crisis, And they get the new truck or the new car or move to the new city or the new job or get a new spouse because life, the life that they chose doesn't excite them anymore and they need a purpose to live into. So they try to alter their life to make it something more uh, that is worth pursuing. Maybe it's nowhere near that extreme, but you find yourself on mental autopilot more often than not when it comes to the things God has called you to. Maybe you've been married to your spouse for some time, but that intentionality, those, those butterfly feelings that you felt at the beginning are gone. And now you're like, uh, we're just raising kids and we're functional roommates and, and like, I don't, I don't know what to do. And you're just kind of like living in the blur of it all. 
Maybe you put in the bare minimum at work because that job, you've hit the death of the honeymoon and that job isn't nearly as fulfilling as you thought it'd be. When it comes to kids, you've been in the thick of it for way too long and you're just emotionally frazzled out. When your day starts, you're just counting down the seconds until kids go to bed that night so that you can catch up with your Netflix show. For what it's worth, just for all the singles and college students who are here, just so y'all don't feel left out, this is not just a thing people in their 30s and 40s experience anymore. Now we have the quarter-life crisis where people in their 20-somethings are finding out that chasing your dreams is a bit more boring than they were told and it doesn't match up with what they see in social media and now there's all these mental health concerns that are happening as a result Or maybe just simply, uh, you hit the death of the honeymoon phase and we create these little purposes of our own to live into, where we create something to fight for because we need something desperately to live into, some story to make sense of our lives. So some people get really obsessive into hobbies or work or CrossFit or whatever. Some people turn to politics and social causes because it's like, I need, I need some story to live into. I need some sort of dragon to slay. And so I'm going to be really about my team and my side, and I want to vilify the other side and attack them so that I have some sense of excitement and some purpose, some meaning to live into. Some people, uh, at least on my Twitter feed, some people get really intense over like theological debates with like no nuance, no empathy or understanding at all. And it's really just that same idea of like, I just need something, someone to fight just so that I can feel some meaning and purpose in my life. Maybe it's a mix of all of the above, all leaving you with this soul level weariness. Is Jesus coming back? Eh, Maybe, maybe not, but please let me just do what I want. Let me just live life how I want to live it. Let me find something to do, something to chase after, and maybe it won't give me this low-level disappointment that I feel in my soul. Again, Jesus' point in the parable is how you wait reveals who you're waiting for. In other words, if you knew who you were waiting for, that would shape how you respond. So for the next few minutes, I want to paint that picture for us to better understand who we're waiting for. John chapter 10 Jesus says this, he says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. Philippians 1.6, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Romans chapter 8, I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. 1 Timothy 2.13, if we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Jesus' parables ultimately point us back to him the true and better master, the true and better groom who out of his love for you went to the deepest depths of pain and suffering to pay for sin and draw you close to himself. And this means Jesus through his life, death and resurrection, through the power of his spirit, Jesus is more committed to your growth and pursuit of him than you are. 
and he will finish the work he started in you to ensure you make it to the very end because he is a master who serves us and he is a a groom who is patient with us and it is out of this love he is working in you to help you stay faithful to the end. And all the while, we respond, we follow, we prepare, we obey. We do our part and we press on in the power of the Spirit, living in community, following the way of Jesus, knowing that Jesus is powerfully working in us to pursue him. He is more committed to our growth than we are. And look, I don't want us, uh, for some of you, you might be thinking like, well, how does that work? You know, the theology of it, of like, you know, big phrases that end with ism, like, what are we saying? Are you with this or that? I'm not here for that. What I'm just saying is the Bible makes these two truths very clear, that God is powerfully working in us to help us persevere, that no one can snatch us out of the Father's hand, and we are faithful and we persevere, and we do our part. Both are true. And my hope, I want us to see in these parables, for those who view Jesus, the true master and true groom, that the last day is coming. It is coming. And here's why that's good news, is because when you know the last day is coming, it shapes how you view the present. When you know how the last day is coming, it shapes how you view the present. And honestly, like, when it comes to Jesus's last day, like the last day where he will renew all things and judge the living and the dead, the stuff we're talking about here, I don't know about you, but that can just feel so abstract. But I want us to remind you that we do have this understanding of last days in your life. Like you have known last days are coming for you. Like I remember when there was the last day of high school for me. Like I knew that day was coming and I was so excited when the last day of high school happened. Or for some of us, when that last day of college finally hit, like you knew it was coming, right? And that informed, that shaped how you viewed the present to know that last day was coming. And I, I think about my life and as a father of three kids, about to have four, uh, my, my days are filled with a lot of last days and some of them are pretty awesome. Like there's a, there was a day where it was like, hey, my kid is potty trained. I don't have to do diapers anymore. Praise God. Hallelujah. This is awesome. There are times when my kid's not crawling anymore. They're walking. This is great. There comes a day when I don't have to buckle them in their car seat. There was a last day when I had to help them. But now they're doing it on their own, and that's awesome. And uh, being a dad, I am realizing there's a lot of last days that are happening that, like, are coming And I'm not going to know when they're going to happen, but they are going to happen. There's going to be a last day when my kids will, like, want to sit in my lap to watch a movie. And a last day is coming when they're going to want to wrestle with me. And there's going to be a last day coming when um, they will just want to hold my hand in public as, like, we're walking around. I know that there is going to be a last day coming for that, and I don't know when it's going to happen. And knowing that, it's just making me all the more just aware as a dad to just be present and to be faithful to these kids right here, right now. It's like uh, my five-year-old, whenever I have to like tie my shoe or pick something up, she like always pretends she's a monkey and just runs at top speed and climbs on my back and starts choking me around the neck and starts making monkey sounds in my ear. And it's like, it is so... (laughs) kind of frustrating, annoying, but also I know 
that last day is coming when she will do that, so I'm just, I'm just letting it happen. And it's like, okay, okay, sweetie, I can't breathe. Daddy needs you to get off now. But I know that last day is coming, and it's shaping like just me being intentional as a dad. And I want you to think about those sin struggles in your life that feel so discouraging. Think about Tom from the start of the sermon. Think of you having to go to God to confess that sin again. Going to your spouse to confess that sin again. Going to your life group to talk about your disappointment in life again. And you're tired of it and you're frustrated by it. What I want you to hear is that there will be a last day where you will have to confess that sin. And you won't know it when it happens. It'll just feel like the next time. But then one day you will be with Jesus and you will realize, oh, I didn't know that at the time. But that was the last time, that was the last day I confessed that sin. So I just encourage you, keep going and keep turning to Jesus. Be receptive to his spirit leading you because that last day is coming for you. When it comes to your season of life, wherever God has you, whether it's the quarter life or the midlife or the late in life crisis, to cultivate thankfulness in your heart with whatever God has set in front of you because a last day is coming and Jesus is holding fast to you. So keep going and stay awake because you don't know when the last day will be, but it's coming sooner than you think. And if you find yourself in a long season of depression and the darkness doesn't seem to lift or you've hit the proverbial wall in your walk with Jesus, cling to him, cling to his promises. Keep following the way of Jesus because the last day is coming when the darkness will fully and finally lift and you will see King Jesus in all of his radiant, glorious beauty forever. There will be a last day and you won't know when it happens, but it is coming for you. So hold on. God is more committed to your growth than you are. He started the work in you, and he is determined to bring it to completion to the very last day. So will you pray with me, please, and let's ask the Spirit for this to happen in us.